Welcome back, everyone. We're live for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined as always by an amazing panel, and I'll throw it over first to Spartan Grown. Welcome. Hello, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. Or if you don't do the social media thing, you can find me uh, or you can just shoot me an email at Gmail, SpartanGrown at gmail.com. I'm an organic grower at home here in Michigan and at work at Mitten Canico. I'm a synthetic grower, so I can help you with either side of the equation. Good stuff. Welcome back. And uh, next up, we got the American one. Going to change up the order a little this week. Sorry. Yeah. Hey, Jack and panel and everyone in chat. I'm the American one uh, on the YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore eight Keens on the uh, IG. I think most of you know where to find me. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here today and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Happy to have you back as always. Uh, just wanted to remind everybody to switch on over to the live chat. And like Spartan Grown, who uh, always gives out the email, you can hit me up at jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com if uh, you don't have social media. Next up, we have Matthew Gates. Hey, everyone. My name is Matthew Gates. I'm an IPM specialist. And actually today, uh, I just posted a introduction to the Eurasian hemp borer that's causing a lot of problems globally, but specifically in North America. And if you're a cannabis cultivator, you should make be aware of it. So I covered life cycle and identification, and I'll have a more expanded pest primer video with uh, distribution, uh, resistance management, and treatment. Definitely looking forward to that. I think we had a question on that a week or two ago. So uh, good information and always uh, happy to see your new content coming out. So thank you very much for that. And thank you again for joining us this week. Next up, Noah, the Noah, the grower. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Uh, yeah, I'm Noah, the grower from Instagram with two E's. You can find me there. And uh, most weeks here with uh, everybody here. So uh, yeah, I'm ready to get into it. Thank you again for joining us. Next, we have Aaron, the grower. What's up? Thanks, Jack. Um, good to see you, panel members again, and good to be back again for uh, another week. I'm Aaron the Grower, ATG Acres on Instagram, <clears throat> YouTube, and atgacres.com. Um, I actually have some really exciting news this week. Uh, Kyle got to visit, so I hope we get to talk about that for a little bit today, too. Awesome stuff. And speaking of Kyle, we have uh, Kyle from Predicative Breeding. Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Kyle Breeder. I am a cannabis breeder that specifically, well, typically deals with feminized seeds. Um, if you're looking for those kind of things, I do have a website. It's the letter P followed by breeding.com. Uh, all my social media, Facebook, Twitter, which I'm still banned from I'm trying to figure that out. And Instagram is a uh, predicated breeding. And yeah, anybody ever has questions, feel free to reach out. I do try and talk to everyone and uh, you know, I do a giveaway every Wednesday. So if anybody wants to be a part of that, you can do that too. And uh, yeah, there's some big, uh, big things happen this weekend and uh, it's exciting. I'm sure Aaron will shed a little light. Really excited to uh, hear more on that. And uh, last, but certainly not least, welcome back to Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. Hey, Jack. Yeah, it's Dr. MJ Coco. I am back. I had a little two-week hiatus. I'm going to be gone probably for the next two weeks, too, in the process of moving. So I hope everybody bears with me. But I'm really excited to move, and then I'm going to set up a cool grow and get growing. We are starting the plant training grow challenge over at Coco for Cannabis. So everybody should sign up for that. And I'm excited to be back for the show today. 
We're happy to have you back. I uh, had planned for this week because every so often I like to do a chat Q&A just to get into question and answer with the chat. If anybody has questions to throw them out there, tag either at Cheap Home Grow or any of the panel members that you see in the YouTube chat or here with us tonight. And we'll try and get to those questions. But I wanted to maybe throw it over to uh, Aaron or Kyle and uh, maybe hear a little bit about that news. And then maybe we'll pass it to Dr. MJ and talk about uh, what your plans are setting up in the new space. Sweet. Thanks, Jack. Um, I'll, uh, I'll, I will shed a little light, like Kyle said. So as most of you know, um, I'm moving to Oklahoma, bringing my family out there to like start a legal cannabis business. Um, been in California for 10 years. So this is sort of a huge shift. And anytime you make a huge shift, it's, it's not easy. And anytime you're trying to build something awesome, it's not easy. So Kyle kind of saw that and um, reached out and said, look, I want to be a part of what you got going on. I said, dude, I'm uh, utterly flattered. And um, so we're sort of integrating powers here. And uh, he's going to he's going to be tagging along to Oklahoma. I got him on the ball and chain and we're dragging his ass to Oklahoma. Um, we're going to be doing some big things, man. And we're talking like as early as the beginning of next year. So I really look forward to it. And uh, I don't know, Kyle, you have anything else you want to say about it? I'm happy to hear your thoughts, too, man. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just want to throw out there that, um, you know, I've been trying to find my way in the industry, obviously, um, and a lot of us don't have capital or a way in, uh, which is hard, which is kind of why, you know, I was able to at least get in the seed industry. I mean, it wasn't for the money, it just was just a way for me to just be a part of the community. But um, yeah, I just kind of seen everyone was going to Oklahoma. I noticed Aaron was going down there and, you know, I, I really respect what he does. He's a really good organic grower. He's very skilled at what he does. Uh, I would I would say that in cultivation wise that he would probably outperform me. So I just have a lot of respect for what he does uh, in regards to that. And I'm sure I could learn a lot from him in some of those areas. And yeah, I reached out and you know, I think it's just, you know, like, like he said, I mean, it takes two really good people, you know, uh, it doesn't take two really good people, but it's, it's good to have good people on your team and uh, just makes things go a little bit quicker, faster, maybe a better, uh, better outcome, you know, and uh, we're both pro community and we're, you know, we're just trying to give back. So I just think it's going to be a really good thing. And I'm really excited. Perfect. Well said, bro. Thanks, man. Monumental moment of the cheap home grow. One of the first uh, business partnerships to come out of this. And I, I'm happy to see it because I think that we've spent a lot of time together and we've gotten to know each other over these years. And it just makes sense to collaborate with people that you have common interests with and you're both, uh, you know, thinking about going there and I'm really happy to hear that. So uh, I'm excited to see what the future holds for both of you. Aaron's uh, harvest that I saw earlier this year at the beginning uh, of the year when I went up and visit, it was uh, much smaller then. And to see Kyle up there, uh, seeing them next to the plants, it's kind of amazing to see where it started and where it finished. So uh, congrats, Aaron, to an amazing harvest and, and great outdoor season. Uh, hats off to you on that. Do you have any thoughts just uh, reflecting back on this year versus maybe last year? Because I know Last year, the fires kind of uh, blacked out the sun for maybe a month. And this year, it seemed like things went a little bit better. Yeah, man. When the stars align, they align. Everything everything was hitting on all eight. And uh, we, we just nailed it this year. Everything came through perfect. And um, just sometimes, you know, you know, I downsized this year. And I think doing that was, was huge for me. You got to realize what you can handle and what you can't. And that's part of why Kyle and I are coming together is, you know, I can only do so much. And he's another amazing grower. And, uh, and especially with the breeder talents, I mean, that New England rock candy is like, it's something out of this world, testing over 30% with cannabinoids. And so there's just so many things to look forward to. And uh, yeah, and this year, it really was serendipitous in a lot of ways. Um, ha you know, I've only been on the show for a little over a year. So 
I got you guys to thank for all of it. My, you know, a good portion of my recent success, you know, especially Matt, um, Jack, you know, I got a lot of love for you guys and uh, hope to hope to work with all of you very, very closely in the future. Eventually. I hope we never work on the thing that I specialize in. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? I hope you're right. I, but I still hope you come visit. <laughs> Maybe only for setup uh, advice, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll help make sure it's not a problem. How about that? You can set up a bulletproof IPM system for you so you don't ever have to talk to them again. <laughs> yeah, I think the biggest challenge for me is going from uh, Boston to uh, straight dirt. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure I'll be all right. Oklahoma is a different state, man. Uh, I've never been, oh, yeah. but I've seen. No uh, ocean, man. No ocean. That's going to be big. I know. No more lobsters, man. <laughs> no more clippers. No more Mexican food. That's good. There's so yeah. many lakes and rivers, though. You can. I'm that's sure there's true. other. You know, I bet there's some good Mexican. <laughs> I bet you there's some good Mexican food because. I bet the Mexicans better in Oklahoma than Boston. Yeah, oh, I was sure. about to say that. <laughs> well, then I'm I'm like wicked uh, recently in the last couple of years uh, obsessed with like smoked meat and. Uh, so I'll be doing a lot of that. And I'm sure, you know, kind of that area in Texas and all that's really good with that, that kind of scenario. You're going to be in heaven down there. Smoked meats, barbecue, anything of that sort. Yeah. Uh, down south, you're good. Oh, yeah. Fishing. Right? Rivers? Yeah. Yeah. yeah we yep. fishing down there. Great fishing. I got a dozen cattle on the land. So we'll smoke a couple of those. <laughs> what kind of cattle did you go with? A uh, we have those. Texas. We have uh, Texas Longhorns. So they're they're like the most hardy and they're pretty sweet they they're short they, they're short cows though yeah but they got them big old horns man that you know yeah they, even the females yeah even the cows have them even the, yeah, that's yeah, the best and, way to go i think for protection and absolutely and you, you know the cool thing is is they're one of the few cattle that don't need like donkeys to protect them because of those horns the coyotes steer pretty clear of them other than the uh, the babies but the mommies mamas are pretty close to the babies like they do not leave their side so it's it's a they got it figured out yeah some awesome. of those some of those fucking horns are really really impressive and dude i mean they go for big bucks man i've got a i've got a set mounted from when i got when i lived in texas my brother's oh. wedding in texas that was like one of the focal points uh the photos at the end there was a you know set of longhorns just like hanging out or not like a, a live bull or female apparently i don't i didn't even realize that the girls have them too but yeah, people were taking pictures, like all dressed up next to a giant ass set of horns. But the females, they're still like fairly big, but like the males, they get some fucking impressive horns. If it's a really good set, it's probably off of a off of a, a male, not the females. I just saw a coyote the other day, so it is a uh, you know imperative that they have some layer of of defense. But transitioning a little bit back to the uh, questions, I got one earlier. At least you tagged me. I think it was Chris Webb. If I didn't, yeah, it was okay. It's an app, Cheap Home Grow. Do you think with CRISPR tech, we could genetically alter cannabis to be grown as a vine down my hall that will grow flowering buds at different times as a perpetual grow? Smiley face. So I think that might be like a little bit of a hypothetical. Like I uh, answered it in the text. Thinking. I said you could look at uh, Japanese hops, which grows uh, on a a vine, I think is the technical term, not a vine, whatever. But, um, uh, you know, maybe you could look at that because the cannabis and humulus are so closely related. But um, honestly, I think there's no guarantee, especially for like 
you know, really integrated. I'm not a CRISPR expert, so I don't know, but I feel like I would almost take the opposite approach. I think, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know if anybody's going to work on it. Wouldn't be the, I think it would be better to do a breeding thing and, and rather than like CRISPR, because I feel like it would take a lot of, and you know, that's not even going to be the germline necessarily. Right. So, or just set up like a decent grow. <laughs> well, vining traits may, I mean, aren't, aren't in cannabis. So if you wanted to really give it some, some characteristics that aren't currently part of its genetic profile, um, mm-hmm. that's what they do with CRISPR. I mean, that's just genetic modification. It's a way to do very accurate genetic modification. I think it'd be um, the easy part, again, it's a vine. I think the hard part would be to, to try to change the morphology of the plant to be vegging and flowering at the same time to be able to have a perpetual harvest. I don't know how they would even manage that. It might be more delicate. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That part is would be the more complicated part, but I think you would do it with autoflowering genes. Or like, um, yeah, maybe. And get them to, to be activated by, you know, some other signal from the plant um i I think you could do it but i don't think that anybody's going to yeah like maybe the uh tomatoes i know you can have grown on vines and then they have an ever-bearing tomato and i think some of those are vegetative areas of the plant and then some of it is fruiting like the ones that are just constantly they put out tomatoes basically uh once they begin they continue to put them out so maybe you could do something with that but i think this is definitely above uh any of our pay grades here, because I don't think any of us have worked with CRISPR or plan to. Uh, but I've studied uh, genetic engineering, though. You know, I think you'd, you'd actually do it the other way. You'd take a, a plant that had all the other characteristics that you wanted, and you would genetically engineer it to produce cannabinoids. Um, Probably so, right? Yeah, you would go that way instead of trying to change a cannabis plant to have the, the whole set of characteristics that it didn't currently have. So they can do things like that. I have a question a lot more on our uh, level, I think. Brian M. asks, has anyone on the panel tried 12-12 from seed? I have not. Uh, I've always thought that I'd rather veg it for at least a few weeks and then flip it. So I've never actually gone 12-12 from seed because I don't think it'll actually flower uh, uh, like any faster than if you vegged it for a few weeks. So I'll um, yeah, I kind of agree with that. Else. It won't flip to flower until the roots tap out. So unless it's in a very, very small container um you're still got a week or so before it's going to start flipping a flower i have never done it because and because not that i would be opposed to doing it but well i am kind of opposed to doing it but i've never done it because i'm in a plant count state and what that means is that i i have to my restriction is how many plants i have which means i have to grow big plants and flipping to 12 12 right away is not going to get me there so um, I can't do I'll that. say that uh, I had some strains that were like from the equator and I didn't put them into 12 and 12. But when I took cuts off of them, as soon as the cuts, uh, as soon as I saw that they were alive as a cutting, I put them onto 12 and 12 because a lot of strains, that's their life. They don't have they haven't seen anything else but 12 and 12 from seed from anything at the equator. So I would suggest that if you have straight seeds from the equator, because I've had ones that I didn't put on 12 and 12 from seed and any kind of veg just makes them go berserk. Like within a week, they were into the, they were over six feet tall. So it's not 12, 12 the whole year around at the equator. It is doc. No, it's not. 
It's like semi close, it's, like but it's not always 11 12, 12. And a half than 12. Yeah, it's really yeah, close. It, it wanders back and forth off of it. It's actually longer at both at when the, the sun's at the end of each sort of when it gets up to the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, you have longer days there at the equator too. Yeah, anybody who's running any kind of land race or heirloom, I would suggest and uh, what he just said and definitely go uh, extremely short veg or 12 and 12 right away because that thing will smash into your the top of your, your roof of your tent or basement very fairly quickly. If it, it depends yeah, on the hold on, let's from. get back to this for a second because the, the day length of the equator definitely varies. The plants that are traditionally grown equatorially are photo period plants. They're not autoflowers. The autoflowering trait comes from extreme northern climates. Um, That's also true in cannabis research in my review that I talk about. I talk about how as they get, they go from the bot, the haplogroup closer to the equator, wasn't even at the equator, but the origins, origin zones as they grew when they got higher. Um, the northern, the middle and the northern haplogroups were uh, not sensitized to light. That's correct. Well, they'll veg on the 12 and 12 for us, for a spell, I suppose, but yeah. Every single plant, autoflower or not, I've seen veggies under 12, 12 from seed. It'll never just go straight from flower, straight out of the sprout. Like it, it'll, like Doc said, it's going to at least develop some root mass, hit the bottom of a pot before it starts flowering. So then at that point, if you have the ability to use a vegetative stage, then you could kind of shape the plant or grow it a little bit bigger and get maybe some more out of it, uh, unless you're going no, just for rapid. It kind of reminds me of, um, I was, I was reading that in some, I think in, in Israel, they're growing plants typically in like that dwarf style. And I think we've talked about this a few times on the show about how sort of sort of dwarfing plants can cause, uh, it can be economically the best move for a lot of um, like fruit bearing trees and things like that. I, I think that's, that was the case, right? Because you don't have to put in as many resources to create a larger plant and a greater ratio of the canopy space i guess per like gram or per ounce or whatever is going to be like fruit right so yes you know it kind, of, it kind of reminds me of that um sort of concept of growing the plants kind of short stocky those domestication traits kind of like brussels sprouts versus you know original like where mustard comes from right <laughs> they're very different yeah well brussels sprouts are a cabbage um but yeah related to the the wild cabbage family um yeah, I agree with all of that. Chinese cultivators have been growing in like small pots and uh, keeping plants small and doing what people called like the Dutch table method where they grow a bunch of, or like sea of green uh, as yeah. it later became known. That method has been around for uh, hundreds or maybe even thousands of years if uh, the research that I've done is correct. And so it's something- yeah, Even that, with that, I agree with you, Jack. Your first week there, you're running on 18 or even 24 hours of light because- only putting 12 hours of light when the plant is necessarily vegetating for the first week of its life, you're, you're just losing out on quantum yield. Um, so giving them more light, then it's not going to slow down the transition to flowers. So I think going, you know, longer day length, at least for the first week, 10 days, whatever, um, you're not going to slow yourself down doing that in terms of the flip to flower. You would slow yourself down slightly in terms of quantum yield if you started 12-12 right out of the bat like right when they broke ground yeah and to go back to the equator thing real quick before we go to we've got some other good questions coming up uh like i know breeder steve works in columbia and it is close to twelve twelve, close enough that uh, a lot of his stuff he has to keep under light so that he has like mothers in a veg area 
and he has to run artificial light in those areas and then everything else that's just basically he sets outside will go into flower uh, but that you know is in pending on the veg period yeah i think that's what matt's talking about the, the strains that are, de- are evolved more for middle latitudes are going to only be triggered once they get you know less than 13 hours of light or something um because during the summer they're getting like 15 16 hours of light um so once they get down below 13 hours of light they'll flip into flower and in an equatorial range the 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 range doesn't vary that much so yes that still makes sense so we've got a few questions i think or maybe it's this one long question northern grower 4466 says when checking trichomes for harvest do i take buds off top or bottom does it matter and trying to decide if i should chop my first harvest tonight and i'll pass that to the panel before i weigh in what do you think aaron i was gonna say i definitely have an opinion on this um uh i like to look at a bud that's like i'll take a cola i mean it depends on what you want to smoke right they all finish at different rates especially for different strains like certain strains the tops will be all done and the bottoms will be lagging behind two weeks so it just depends like okay so if i know this strain finishes a lot on the top i'm gonna check a cola like maybe three quarters of the way down from the top. And I'm going to make sure that I'm looking at the bud, not the leaf. So, so when I'm actually examining it, I'm pulling the leaves away, you know, potentially and, and looking at the trichomes that are growing on the buds. That's going to be the best indication of when, when to harvest. And then I like, personally, I like 10 to 50% amber trichomes just depends on the strain. Um, and what kind of high I want and what the conditions are. I'm an outdoor guy right now. So if it's going to rain soon, fuck what the trichomes say, let's harvest. Um, yeah, definitely agree with that. It. Yeah, that's a good point, Aaron. I mean, there's other factors that you can, you can factor in your environment. Uh, you can factor in your situation. Like, do you need plants that are behind it? You need to push. I mean, obviously you're not going to harvest it like six weeks ago. Like, oh, I got to do this, but I mean, you know, rule of thumb is anywhere from eight to nine weeks. And then obviously you can, you know, go off of that, you know, guys that do like I do that, that, that flush, they're going to want to have like a certain time that they can flush on certain strains. You get to know better just by looks too, but there's a lot that goes into that. I also no, feel I... like maybe the answer, because it can be variable is to take a bunch of samples and try them yourself, maybe even dry them and uh, cure them, do a little, do a little set. Don't you do that Spartan sometimes when you're cultivating you take a little, I thought you posted recently a sample. So so I, yeah, I was going to chime in too. And that's exactly what I was going to say is like, if this is a strain of your own and you're growing it for yourself, this is something I do at home that I can do. I can't really do it at work, but at home I can do a staggered harvest. If it's a, if it's a strain that I'm growing for the first time, I have no experience with it. Usually I have an idea from the breeder of the finishing time. They'll put on the box or something, you know, eight, eight weeks or nine weeks usually for most strains. So I'll know at least that much information. So at week seven, I can take a bud and, and dry and cure it. At week eight, I can take another bud and dry and cure it. At week nine, I, I can harvest the plant if, it's, if I think it's ready to be harvested by then. And then I'll have the samples of the early samples. I'll already have, uh, I'll be actually being able to smoke them before my harvested plant is really ready to go. And I can get an idea 
of both the high and the, the dirt profile, you know, you only need enough for a joint. So it's, you know, one butt or something. And uh, it's going to give you an idea of, of what that can bring if you harvested it at that time. So you can, you can, you know, compare that week to week, you know, with your three, four, however many samples you want to really go with it. Right now, what I, what, what I'm doing now is I'll just grow it and uh, note the harvest day. And then the next time I grow it, I'll say, okay, I wasn't super happy with the plant. We'll say if I was super happy with it, I'll just go for the same harvest day or target. But if I wasn't happy with it, I'll be like, okay, maybe if I felt like I went too far with it, I'll harvest it a little bit early the next time. And I'll, I'll note that day and then figure out, well, do I like it better this time or worse? And then I can, you know, adjust to that way. Cause you're going to keep growing this thing over and over. It's really the best way because every plant's going to be different. Even, you know, even if the breeder, you know, thinks that they know for sure that it's this special day that it's going to be ready. I mean, give me a break, man. There's so much phenotypical expression. There's no way you can pinpoint it exactly. There's no way. Definitely. I, I was well, going to, I just going to yeah. bring up that it's a snapshot in time as well. Right. And your predictive ability maybe goes up a little bit better if you've grown that, you know, that cultivar before. And especially if it's like, you know, an ongoing clone, but even then like age, you know, changes things, context changes things, environment changes things too. And, and, and yeah, yeah that that's, that's what I was, that's what I was going to point out. Every grow is different too. So it may have taken True. eight weeks on that other grow, but some factors may have caused it to slow or it might take less or longer in the next one as well. So I think there's a that's lot of true, factors. But that's where your, your grower's eye comes in, right? So when you, when you look at that planet yeah. harvest, you kind of remember what it looked like. So when you see that again, you know what I mean? You know, okay, this is what it was like before. This is when it's, you know, it's yeah. ready to harvest. That's what I think is really more important it is because it does. I, I agree um, with Tao that every plant is a little bit different, even if it's the same strain, even if they're clones from the same mother. Um, every grow is a little bit different, um, you know, certainly from one person's grow to another person's grow with like different lighting, different climate, um, different, you know, feeding and watering patterns and everything like that. All of these things can affect on the margins the, the time to harvest um, for different strains, especially the amount of light, I think. I mean, you can talk difference in several days um, compared to like an underlit to a fully lit grow. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it does come down to knowing your grow and knowing your plants a little bit, knowing what you like. But I definitely agree with what Spartan said. If it's the first time you're growing a plant, um, make sure you're not like harvesting it way too early. But cut different colas down in different times, you know, wait a few days in between each one, keep track of that, cure it and dry it and, and see which one you like the best. Um, it's really, really tough to like pull a sample and, and actually sample it in the amount of time that they would like allow you to make a, a, a management decision like that on the current grow, because almost anything you do, it, it's going to take a while to get a good read on, on how the cannabis is after harvest. I mean, you need to try it. You need to at least do, you know, wait, cure, whatever you want to call that next process. You use a now um, dryer. And get you there. That's four days though. Four days is still enough to change it. Cause I've had like hung dry stuff from like day 63 versus like day 67. And you could definitely, I think in my personal opinion, tell the difference in that four days. Uh, and, and, and not only that, I really have come of... to the opinion that the amount of time you're going to cure the bud or the amount of time you're going to store the bud, um, 
affects now when I'm going to harvest it. If I'm going to be, if it's going to be in jars for a year, which is not uncommon for me at this point, then I'll harvest it about a week earlier than I would have otherwise. If I want to use it quicker, um, it's better to let it go a little bit longer. That's a good point because it will mature a little bit more in the jar for the earlier harvested stuff over that time period. really does. I've been paying attention to that lately. Um, and it, it really changes it. The, the profile of the white widow that I grew for NYGC has changed completely. I was going back and read some notes um, about a month after I harvested it um, compared to using it now. It's like, you know, six months later or something dramatically different so it really does it, it really does make a difference how long you're going to hold on to it and if you're using it right away or not that was like my doc holidays i harvested it and i was talking about how it was just all fuel like straight gasoline smell and the early like month or two months that i was consuming most of it uh, fresh after harvest it was pretty heavy in that fuel still but then when i saved the best nug of the harvest every year for 420 i go through and we smoke like the best bud and it sits in the curador at 60 degrees and 60 rh and over that yeah. year the gas smell was gone and it turned into like pure blueberry i went up to sun grown 707s yeah he had grown it himself and he's like oh my god do this like he he handed me the jar and made me smell it. And he's like you said this was all gas and i smelled it and it smelled like blueberry candy and i was like that is a fucking crazy ass change but, uh, it's interesting. Curious. You know, my blueberry smells much more like blueberry if you let it cure for at least six months. Yeah, it, it comes out like a it lot. It definitely comes out. Or the other things like, I don't know, settle out and allows you to, to smell it yes. more or something. But yeah, it changes the thinking. flavor, changes the high, changes everything about it changes. It's funny you said that, um, Dr. Coco, because as you were saying that, that was the thought going through my head was like, I wonder if it's like that terpene, uh, like, for example, beta caryophylline really really takes a long time to to flash off we'll say and it's one that's usually the last terpene to hang around and that's why most of the weed that came long distances ended up just tasting like pepper and shit because beta caryophylline was the only thing left dude i have a bud from the 90s my like one of my ogs you taught me how to grow he's like much much older it's from thailand from the 90s it still smells fucking peppery in the little altoids tin when he popped it open to give me some seeds i was like holy shit man it's still peppery as fuck so that one sticks around for a long time for sure but what you were talking about with the uh, things flashing off uh the alcohols and esters and other things that are not terpenes that make the fuel aroma um there are a few terpenes that contribute to the fuel but i do think that there is some esters and alcohols that are more volatile that go sooner that's probably why it smelled so gassy early on and then the blueberry that was present just kind of was more dominant later on after the cure um but i was curious about kyle breeder i think you're the um one of the last people that hadn't mentioned your harvest time thoughts about this uh question that we had just a moment ago uh they kind of were to refresh your memory asking if you harvest everything kind of at the same time uh like how do you and i uh, went to chop because sometimes the stuff at the top is more developed than the stuff at the bottom Well, it's a good question. Um, I mean, most things that I kind of do, or I'm sure maybe that we all deal with this. I mean, uh, I noticed that the top definitely develops more than the bottom or faster. Um, but because I'm doing seeds, I just harvest the whole damn thing. Um, uh, you know, so I'm not too sure. I mean, I guess if I was just strictly cultivating flower, I mean, I don't really have the space to, or the time. For me, it's all about just like speed, you know? So I don't really have time to chop the top and let the lowers keep going. Uh, cause I'm indoors, I'm in the city. Uh, so it's a little more difficult to do that, but, um, 
but yeah, I mean, if I had the option, I'd probably let the lowers go up a little bit longer, you know, especially if it's like uh, medicine that I'm specifically looking for, or even just trying to give to other people. Uh, I, I think it would, it's a good idea to basically to, to do that in sections like that. But uh, for me again, yeah. So like once I, once I pollinate everything and I flip back to, uh, uh, we talked about this last week, but I just flip right back to 18.6 and just, I just basically wait till the seeds mature and I just harvest the whole, the entire plant. It's definitely a different process when you're growing for seed. I, I let mine go a lot more mature um, as well. And so what you're talking about with growing for flower though, letting the lowers, like outdoor, if you're like air in situation, you could harvest the top and maybe let the lowers go. But indoor, I think it, like we talked about last week with like the grams per square foot per year, uh, it'd probably make more sense to get another harvest in that spot than to like right. chop the top, wait another yeah. few weeks, like take the middle and wait a few weeks and like take the bottoms, uh, depending on how, how big or small you let it go. So. I missed that conversation last week. I have some things to say about that. Absolutely. I, I think that it's a waste of time to, to harvest the tops just to let the bottoms get more light or mature. The, the issue is not that the tops are faster than the bottoms. And everybody says that, but that's not what's going on. It's that the tops were prioritized over the bottoms. They're, they're all maturing at the same basic rate. You're not going to sort of be able to make up that ground they're just underdeveloped. They're not developing slower. They're just underdeveloped. And cutting the top of the plant off and, and letting those, those buds get light is really, I mean, you have to go like another six weeks or something before you'll actually see any difference in that um, or any kind of improvement. I've tried it. Um, it's just a waste of time. I, I, you, the reason you end up, ended up with underdeveloped buds on the lower part of the canopy is you left too much undergrowth on the plant for the not amount of light. light that you were providing yeah. the plant. It's not really a, a type of a condition that I would try to recover from with additional time. Yeah, I have a question. I, and for outdoors, though, it fucking 100% works. If outdoors, you've got the sun and you're not going to reuse the space or whatever, that's a different set of right. equations. Right. There. You're still not to... going to get much more if those plant, oh, if those buds weren't developed properly during the main. There's, sort of there's more advantage. Phase. That's one advantage. It's not a lot more, but you, you still, it does improve the buds. And at the same time, you get advantages elsewhere, like harvesting, you know, I mean, with outdoor, it's a lot, especially if you're growing big plants. So if you harvest, if you, if you can cut that work into thirds instead of all at once, yeah, outdoors is totally different set of calculations. You're not going to reuse the space in the same sort of yeah. timeline. I just want to make you're it clear not so spending all the energy on the on the light. I'll, yeah, I'll add. A, I'll I, add. No, I agreed with what you said on the indoor, but I just wanted to make it clear that listeners weren't confused. They're saying that because it is an effective practice outdoor. Yeah, I, think. I want to ask one. I think some of my strains, the lower buds, the plant continues growing at the tip. The lower buds seem to get some of my plants seem to get more mature on the lower buds before the tougher buds. So I don't know about yeah. any of this. If the plant has enough light for the amount of buds that it's trying to grow, they'll all mature at the same time. Yeah, basically. I'm pretty sure if you scrog, I would agree with that, uh, Doc. I'm pretty sure if you did a scrog and had a, a completely even canopy, I, I would think that the you know the lower buds. Even right. if it's a, a you know the, the buds are totally shaded out, they'll still be supported by the canopy growth and the canopy and the photosynthesis produced at the canopy. The plant will distribute that to the lower buds if there's uh, enough me, of it. If there's not enough of it, it will just distribute it to the local buds, the buds that are at the top of the canopy. So what's going it, on I feel there like is you have too many lower buds that the plant can't support with the amount of photosynthate that it's producing in the canopy. Um, so if you had thinned out the undergrowth, you, you would have had sort of better success. But, um, you know, yeah, cutting off the top and exposing them to, to light 
will help eventually after like six weeks or something. It's just not worth it. It definitely doesn't help. take six weeks. It takes like a week to two weeks. And I do it almost every harvest because I'm an outdoor guy. So I'm definitely not arguing, but I will just add my experience, which is that it takes about a week or two to those for those bottoms to fill out. And what you see is white hairs on the lowers and red yeah. hairs on the tops. And so that to me represents maturity and speed. Um, so I, I say that those are slower, those lowers, and that they then gain that mass in that last week or two. So it doesn't take too long. If you're outdoor, it might be worth it. I feel like a lot if, of it comes If you're outdoors, it's going to work better too, because those leaves down at the lower part of the plant are still going to be photosynthesizing in a way that what happens in an indoor grow, when you get a full canopy and the canopy really blocks out the lower leaves, those leaves start stop photosynthesizing. They're not getting light anymore. Um, and when you cut off all of the photosynthetically active areas of the plant during a harvest and expose a bunch of stuff that's never had light getting down to it in months, it, it takes the plant a while to recover from that and to sort of even develop, uh, you know, photosynthesis in those part areas and to start growing again and, and supplying and building those buds out. So there's a big setback time if you're cutting off the top of a fully developed canopy. And that is, again, different in outdoor grow, Aaron. Right. Like the light doesn't just go to the leaves that are right next to the, the flower material. And then like the photosynthate just goes right there. Yeah. Like it's not, that's not how the process works. It goes all the way down. You know, the phloem moves through it. That's why aphids feed on phloem. There's, there's a, there's a process that I think fundamentally people don't understand. And even my, like, uh, you know, embarrassing is to say like conceptually, uh, even I sometimes regress back and forget that like carbon is actually coming from the air and sequestering it through photo, you know, yeah, you know, it's not coming from the soil. Right. But like concept, it's sometimes hard because as an abstract concept to sort of invisible to us and uh, you know, even our, our own like experiential biases can overcome us even when we know better. You know, that's, that's one of my favorite it. high thoughts to just be like high in a park, looking at a tree and imagining myself how that tree assembled itself out of molecules of the air. Yes, right. It, it is. <laughs> it, it's it's fun. You have to be pretty high, um, but you can spend a good couple hours just contemplating that. Matthew, I have an IPM question for you uh, in regards to the sequential harvest, because what I was thinking was in Aaron's situation or in, in any outdoor situation, um, just the ability to prevent mold, I guess, by creating a little bit extra airflow, like you have your heavier buds up top, you're taking off that row, and then you're allowing more airflow to that next row, which would then basically add on a little bit more weight over, let's say it's one, two, three, six weeks, whatever that time period is, outdoor, oftentimes people have it. Um, but is there, like, is it worthwhile for that consideration to try and just prevent mold and create more airflow? It could, it could be. Like I love to say, depending on your context, but it could be very well. Um, Cause I've seen, I've seen some chunky plants and actually um, a couple of friends of mine were dealing with a problem with related to mold. And um, they, uh, one of the, one of the things that they had to figure out was like how to avert that for the next grow. And, and that's essentially what they ended up doing. Same plant, same um, grow space. And they did thin um, uh, the foliage a, a lot more. And, and it did work out for them, but that's just, that's again, and as I say this anecdote, understand that it's just, it's just N plus one. It's not conclusive, right? Like, um, there's a lot of situational cases, dependence. You really got to try to predict it using parameters that you are able to quantify, right? So like, 
you know, when pe- when commercial growers and even like home growers have like ways to like assess the relative, not absolute, but the relative humidity, you know, the leaf temperature, you know, things like that, they can kind of get, they can be proxies somewhat, but like, ultimately you do, you're never like making decisions with a hundred percent of the information. And most people are making decisions rarely with a lot of quantification. And I, and that's actually not an insult or anything. That's just a state of fact. Um, right. I have a good people... question. So your buddies that were defoliating during flower, um, I've always heard, you know, and I defoliate during flower, but um, I do it on dry days and uh, usually in the morning time. Um, I've heard that when you defoliate and you're cracking that, that petiole at that abstraction point, that, that, that burst of liquid can actually be the, the birth of Botrytis or, or like a, a, the, the, you know, a situation where Botrytis could then take hold. Have you guys heard that? Or well, wounds, that? wounds in general. I think that that's a really yeah. important yeah. thing to consider. Absolutely. I, I feel like, um, I feel like that's, theoretically possible i guess as like an inoculation zone but i feel like there are more likely places of inoculation let me in ask a general principle this. though like last week i mentioned in the the greenhouse overgrown situation like i would have super cropped versus uh topping the plant and it's like a hard half top i'd rather super crop it and bend it over where you'd have like a giant wound open or a bunch of tops like cutting off basically the top like some people will literally go through with like an edger and just hacksaw the top of their plant to whatever height they decide and let it grow. From I have there. experienced that. I have worked with people who did that. Uh, yeah. I've seen it enough times on Instagram to know that it's a, with a an actual hedger. I want to say that with an actual, with an actual swear to God hedger. Oh, it, like, wow. it oh God. Now I'm excited. I want to see that in like a big commercial operation, somebody going through there with a hedger. That was like their mom maintenance in one person's operation. Their moms were too tall. They just went through. Boom whacked them with a so, edger yeah when you, guys, okay. when you guys defoliate do you snap the leaf off at the stem or do you break the petiole in the middle because if you break the petiole and leave a little nub that shit will dry out and not well i don't know which one do you guys think is best for preventative maintenance uh do you want that wound to be at the actual stem or or i, leave agree with petiole? You. I think i think clean scissors and cut the petiole don't rip them off i agree i agree it, yeah, if you're going them. to do such a thing but yeah oh, there's man, always you guys you cut some leaves off and, and you guys are gonna hate my them. answer I, I just raw dog do. rip them things off wherever they fucking well lay. if you can if you, ATG, can, you, you get the threads i hate the threads dude that, that no, no, you no, can no. rip it off no. without getting a thread you can no, press no down no yeah Finger uh, and thumb, and <laughs> I, I never thread. Um, finger and thumb. Yeah, there's, crack. there's like a yeah, there's like a uh, uh, you know, it's like there's like a divot, and, and you can like snap it off in a sort of a clean way, but it doesn't always happen, right? Right. So. Does leaving a petiole help to prevent um, pathogens from getting in? It could or be vice versa. A, well, that necrotic tissue could be a, a problem. Instead of I being worry about that necrotic helpful. tissue way more than that. removing the whole quick. thing. If you snap it off at the stem, there's that wet moisture that, like ETG was saying, the botrytis lands on that. It's like closer to the plant. It's already in there. I just want. I mean, to- it really depends on the pathogen you're talking about, really, and that's what, okay. that's what it all, all comes down to, or, right? Yeah, I was thinking well, just like, botrytis because that's my yeah. Well, well, yeah. I'm I'm this talking doesn't about seem to be a very common method, as Matthew said to begin with. Yeah, right? like 
This doesn't seem to happen to people when they do. Right, right. The thing about Betraitis that makes it super insidious, I love to talk about the endophyte thing, being able to go into the plant and live in it symptomlessly. We don't know how true that is for cannabis, but the thing for me is that Betraitis, you know, it has the traits that allow it to like, it it can penetrate through the tissue. It has no need of a wound. And it does Uh, that really, really adroitly. So uh, I feel like for Betraitis specifically, probably not necessary similar sorts of thing for powdery mildew as well like they're 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 it was the, the spores. liquid i was it was the liquid i was commenting on just to be right. clear so if, like, but like if not a spore the abscission but or the canidium if, if like one of, if some sort of infective propagule like i'll t- i'll give you an example right so um i was working with some greenhouse growers and the problem that they would deal with is that they got condensation on the greenhouse um uh, on the uh uh the roof because it was at an angle. And what would happen is the, cond- the condensate would form and then it would drop onto these Gerbera flowers at the edges of these rows. And what would happen is that the, the, the plants would get waterlogged and the tissue, the, the leaf tissues themselves, would, um, they, would, they would literally drown, right? The stomata would just continue, would be like wet, there'd be wet spots and that would lead to necrosis. And a lot of bad stuff happened after the crown rot that they dealt with thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, you know, due to that, I could see how perhaps if you theoretically, if you, if you um, cut a bunch of plants, if you made a bunch of wounds, mechanical wounds somehow, and some infect, some like condensate or water with a bunch of particles and possibly like pathogens that are just along for the ride, uh, you know, if those drop down and then that droplet of water passes over an open wound channel, maybe some establishment could happen there, for example, but um, yeah. I don't think it's important. I would argue that living soil grown with a lot of beneficials that the juice coming out of that plant already has endophytes in it that will prevent other ones from taking over, but I could be totally wrong. The only thing about that, I actually agree with that premise. The the issue is that at least in the research that I've seen, that tends to be really, it's either, it's a, how do I put this? It's either functional, um, functionally dependent. So maybe, two, maybe two different, an endophyte and a pathogen might basically, for lack of a better term, cancel each other out because one is in the space or in the niche or occupying the space that the other one has to have. And so there's a, you know, there's sort of a zero sum game there. It's either there or it's not to like neutralize that possibility. But another endophyte might have absolutely no effect on a different pathogen. And so it's very context dependent there, right? Right, like, they could coexist. And what well, is that studied? What is beneficial or detrimental can also change. With one snip, I, I was just talking with somebody on Instagram. I had an IGTV about uh, microbial identification and, and, and like uh, endophyte dynamics. And uh, you know, one of the interesting things is that, like, you, I mean, people think of fusarium. People think of all these other pythium, for example, and other pathogens. Uh, but there are there are groups of the same species, isolates, that are hypovirulent or even beneficial in certain cases. And they use the same machinery to like infect the, the tissue. The only difference is that the context change. Sometimes a mycorrhizal relationship is uh, beneficial. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, or, or I say mutualistic ecologically, but then it, it could shift. Uh, maybe there's less nutrient anymore. Maybe the high cost of the photosynthate turn into hexose for the fungus's benefit from the plant relationship. Maybe that becomes a little bit of a steep price uh, when there's a lot more, uh, phosphorus or whatever that the mycorrhiza is uptaking and 
then it becomes kind of more like a parasite. It's not doing very much for the plant at that point, or the actual physiological dynamic literally changes. And we see this sometimes. And so I think it's really important that people like good diversity is important for the microbiome, but you also want to like verify that you have actual mutualists and not parasites as much as possible. I wanted to give Spartan Grown a chance to jump in because uh, it seems like he had a thought there and had been not able to get it out there quite yet. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> as far as the leaf defoliation, I'm 100% on board with leaf defoliation. And I, when we do leaf strips, we strip where we, like what Jack was saying, we bend it right down and it usually snaps right off pretty quick. As far as if you get a string, uh, that's cut with scissors. You don't pull a string and try to string it all the way down the whole plant. That drives me insane. Um, so yeah, if it doesn't snap, then you can just snap, snip it with scissors. It's way faster that way. And uh, we can get through the, the room way faster, just way, way faster. And it just seems a million times cleaner. If you have a bunch of cut at the petioles, those all eventually dry up to really hard and small little I don't know, dried up petioles and they fall, fall down like, yeah, yeah and they fall pick. all over the fucking place and make a fucking mess. If they fall into the top of the soil and get wet, they'll mold or mold will start growing on it. I've seen it. It's just not, no, we, we just keep everything clean and remove everything out of the room. And uh, outdoor, same way. We, I, I do the same thing. And uh, I don't know. I've, I've never had bad results from doing so. So I continue to do it. That's a good point. I just wanted to expand. I saw that Jay Allen in the comments had asked that bud rot does not require a wound. That's a question. I kind of touched on it, but I just want to reiterate that um, a lot of these fungal pathogens, basically what they do is they, they have a little spore or whatever. They create a, a thing called an apressorium, which is a little, little hyphal strand, and then a thing called a penetration peg. And that's basically a little strand that's got a bunch of enzymes that it secretes that lets it burrow into the tissue. And then from there, depending on the kind of parasite it is or what stage of its development it is, it either siphons up the nutrients by sort of communicating with the, with the cells and, um, and other sorts of like really intricate processes that I can't articulate very well. Well, or, now we got the chat fired up with the penetration peg. I just got to say, <laughs> we've been on this question for a little while, so I just want to give my thoughts on it, and then we'll move on because we have a bunch of other questions that I'd love to get to, and uh, we've got a bunch of listeners out there that I think uh, would like us to get to their questions. So just to reread the question one more time, he says, when checking trichomes for harvest, do I take buds off the top or the bottom? Does it matter? Personally, I like to check the top of the plant. I stopped harvesting based on the trichomes alone. I like to wait until at least they're fully milky. Um, if you get some amber, I don't panic and chop like right away. Uh, it may make it a little bit more sedating, but oftentimes it's not actually uh, related to CBN. You'll see a lot of articles that say when you see amber trichomes, that's 100% sure CBN. I've looked at thousands of lab tests at this point, and there are pictures of the bud for the uh, sample. And many times it's clear or uh, milky or amber. And I look at a lot of the amber samples and I go down to CBN, and it's like 0.00 or 0.01%, and it could be fully amber trichome. So I think oftentimes that could be oxidized terpenes. That's my current theory, or esters or whatever. Something else in the plant is oxidizing and changing color, um, not necessarily the cannabinoids changing. Although older cannabis does get that reddish tone, 
and that does come along with CBN. CBN itself, when extracted, is like a reddish tone. You can convert THC to CBN just by heating it. Um, and, and if you have pure THC and you heat it up in an oven for a long enough time, it'll convert to CBN. So that's the chain that it goes down, THCA to THC to CBN, um, just to kind of get that out there. But as far as harvesting, I do have the MyHerbs now. I'm not sponsored by them or anything, but I do really enjoy it. I tried it versus the Curador versus my old hang drying method, and it was it won out in three or four harvests in a row. So now I just dry everything with that. And if I have a new strain, like I do Amy's Aces, or Amy Aces from the American one, I'll harvest it like eight weeks, nine weeks, 10 weeks, and see what I like most. I'll take like a similar branch where I have like, you know, the maybe less developed bottom buds, which I think once you dry them and cure them end up being just fine. Um, but to go back to the herbs now thing, it takes like 4.5 days to go through their original cycle. I usually add another half day to a full day to that. So five or five and a half days, and then it's smokable right then. So it is consumable. So you would have a good idea of like, okay, if I harvest it at seven weeks, wait four days, five days, I get to try it. It gives you a good idea. But then for me personally, I like to jar it for a week, uh, just seal the jar, put it in the curador for a week, and then I come back to it. And by then it's like perfectly cured. You could try it every single day from the first day to the last day. But uh, after about a week, it's as good as it's going to be. And it stays about that same um, until maybe a month or two, you'll see some changing in the uh, characteristics of the bud. So as far as uh, harvesting, I, I think that you should, in my opinion, indoors, let as much of the white hairs turn red as possible. If your environment is dialed in, I think the plant will mature. And looking out, uh, Frenchie said this and talked to a lot of cultivators in the Emerald Triangle, childhood French cannoli, but he said that most of them actually didn't use the trichomes. They look at the plant because you're trying to judge like the um, secondary metabolites of a plant based on when it's finished. And you could tell when it's finished by when, uh, in many cases, if the hairs have gone from that white to that red, the bud is fill, filled out. You can, some people did like the slap test, they'd smack the bud, which probably ruined that bud or uh, take some of the trichomes on their hand. But when you can squeeze it and you see that there's that density, a lot of people I think take it a little bit too early, maybe one week or two weeks too early. And sometimes if you just let it ride, let it go an extra week or two, you can get a lot more out of it as far as weight. And sometimes even the effect changes a lot. So I think it's worth doing at least once to try it. Then there's people that like the more uplifting effects. So you should also try harvesting it on the earlier end to see how you like it there. Cause everybody really is independent at the end of the day. So each strain is a little different. Um, the whole light comment earlier with like, do the lower canopy develop at the same rate or not? I had a strain, um, three point stance. It was a uh, black triangle GMO Mac. And the top of the canopy, it, I didn't scrog it out or anything, but I just had a bunch of spears. And there was a bud at the very bottom of the canopy that I left on there. And it was in complete shade, but I had enough light supplied to the top of the canopy that it developed as a similar size spear. It was a little bit different color, but it developed a nice, big, beautiful nug. So I definitely think that it is situation dependent, strain dependent. And uh, if you get enough light to the top of the canopy, the lower canopy will develop full finished buds if you give them enough time to finish up. So. Uh, that's my final thoughts, I guess, on that question. And then maybe we could go on to the next question. I think Doc would be able to, I actually am not familiar with this term, um, amorphous silica. So they say, I have a question. How available to plants is amorphous silica? What can you do to, to improve uptake? Um, I've heard amorphous silica is, I don't believe plant available. I don't believe it's plant food. Um, they have to look it up. Um, but no, I, I don't think that's a form of silica that, that is plant available. If anybody else 
knows about that. Let's see what I can find. So I uh, did a cursory Google search just now, and it said, and as I put it into the engine, I get this uh, top start part that says, amorphous silica is an inorganic material commonly used in semiconductor circuits. But I guess that's true for regular silica. You know, that's the silica that we use for circuit boards, right? I don't think, I also agree with you. I don't think that's plant available. Maybe it gets, is that the same as saying it's, it doesn't get sequestered? Because even if it's not used, it wouldn't like, get up. It, it wouldn't get sequestered. It wouldn't even get taken up. Um, right. Well, if it's used for circuits, it sounds like it might be expensive. So I'd wonder why they're using it. Do you have some large supply of amorphous silica? I forgot to copy the name of that person. Um, Kyle Breeder said earlier that they've been on vacation all week and they need some time with the family. I hope that there wasn't a private message, I guess. But Kyle, I want to give you a chance to uh, give your final thoughts and shout outs before you have to get running. Yeah, sorry, guys. Uh, I just haven't had the chance to a, be with uh, some really important people and uh, just been gone. But um, I appreciate everybody here. I appreciate what we do. Um, I think we're going on three years shortly. And, I, you know, I'm sure we've helped a lot of people since then. Uh, I know I definitely get messages. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm really excited about what's happening. And like we talked about earlier, you know, I'm going to move down to Oklahoma with Aaron. We're going to have some really, uh, really epic time down there and have some fire shit going on. And we're both uh, we're both pr pretty excited about that. So that's really cool. But um, yeah, if anybody's looking for feminized seeds, I have a website, which is uh, the lever P followed by breeding.com. I'm on all social media platforms, predicated breeding. And if anybody ever has questions, feel free to reach out. I do answer them. And Wednesdays, I do a giveaway. So uh, feel free to tap in on that. It is free. So just trying to give back a little bit. But uh, yeah, thanks, everybody. I appreciate everybody. And I'll see you guys next week. Cheers. And thank you, Kyle, from my family to yours. Uh, got a family member growing some of Kyle's seeds right now. He's picked his final four uh, winners. So they're looking happy and healthy. Peace out, Kyle. Where's Later, Doc. Oh, Kyle. Later, everybody. Just jumping back onto this amorphous silica, I found one thing that says that it will increase the water retention capacity of soil. Um, but the way that they're talking about it in terms of, of increasing the water retention capacity of soil definitely, definitely makes me feel like it is not uptaken by the plant. Um, so it's not gonna be a source of silica for the plant, but if you're in, drought prone soil and you want the soil to hold water better, they say that uh, it, it may be a supplement for that. And what else works for that is vermiculite, which I believe is actually able to be broken down and provide the plant some silica that it can. You know what else works for that too? Cocoa. <laughs> well, all, all good options. I mean, I just yeah. want to throw them out there for the people because, uh, but, and uh, yeah, the water retention thing is really impressive, both of cocoa and vermiculite um, yep. growing from, I used to grow in like bag soils like old school top soil for whatever and um comparing that to something that has vermiculite or cocoa in it you notice a huge difference so it is um almost like a different world of technology <laughs> and both of them are cool because they don't just hold water well they're like a chamois you know a chamois is so cool because it, it'll suck up all the water but then when you ring it all the water comes right back out again it doesn't like hold on to it cocoa and vermiculite are both like that too they they hold on to the water but they don't prevent the plant from accessing it. So the plant doesn't have to spend a lot of energy to suck that water out of the cocoa or out of the vermiculite, um, which makes it, it's, it's both the sort of ability to retain it and the ability to give it up. I have a great I think question. I've seen other silicon compounds being used or, or, or something related to that being helpful for plants. But I think that in this particular form, and perhaps there's other different physical chemistries with the same like 
structure you know like structurally maybe it's differently different too but like at that point we're talking about physical chemistry and i'm not a physical chemist yeah can microbes break down that amorphous silicone silicate whatever to make it available or we don't know you got to ask russ brandon for the extra special microbe that'll break that shit down for you break down maybe, anything right <laughs> maybe maybe next week when he comes back on but yeah, uh, i'm, we, not, we I'm miss- not sure enough about the chemistry behind it even in terms of what it is or if it's it, it might be more broken down um or it might not be break down a bull into a, a plant available form i have another great right. question that i think the, the chat can or the panel can all sort of uh, jump in on and it's a long time listener and many time question asker Cade armstrong thank you for your listenership first of all cheers to you mm-hmm. uh everybody i guess uh tokes up to Cade armstrong they've been around for as long as i can remember long long time listener and a big supporter of the show so cheers to you Cade. um they're asking at cheap home grow how far up your plant do you shave the legs so i like that question um it's definitely an interesting one it depends on your growth space 100 percent. for me i'm growing in a five foot tall tent i like to veg my plants about a foot tall uh, with some low stress training and super cropping and maybe even some tie downs during the veg period and then when i flip i just kind of let them rage and then fill out the space and if needed i'll do low stress training and super cropping to maintain my height and um i kind of let the plant tell me where i need to uh remove stuff so like sometimes you'll go in there and you'll see like wow this is just really weak and spindly and it's not going to make it up to the top of the canopy and i'll just cut that particular branch and then at about that level i'll notice like a bunch of weaker leaves leaves that tend to start dying off or getting unhealthy tend to be on that lower uh, part of the canopy so i'd say anywhere between like 20 to uh, 50 percent of the lower canopy depending on the strain and how thick the upper canopy is can be removed in my grow space but I'd love to hear uh, Spartan's thoughts on how much of the legs he shaves on his plants. It's um, different inside or outside. If we're talking inside, I think that's what we're talking about here. I'm kind of in the same boat as you, and I do kind of the same thing. Um, I usually want to anything for, for first and foremost, anything that touches the soil is gone as soon as I see that. So that's the first lollipopping or cleaning the legs or whatever you want to call it that happens and that's at any time in the plant's life cycle that can that's a a hard rule for me i don't if i see a touch in the soil hell if i see a touch in the pot it's gone and then uh, and that's just mainly for like pathogens and things like that i want to echo that that's a cool that's a good idea yeah thank you (laughs) and then um after that it's like what jack says anything that is really once i'm into flower you know, a week or two in the flower. And I have branches that are coming from the bottom of the plant that are less diameter, less girthy than my pinky. They're gone. I don't, I want girthy branches. I don't want this fucking thin branches. Not what I need. I like big, I like big girthy fucking branches that hold big girthy buds. So um, all the small little bullshit branches go. And um, as far as, foliage or leaves it's really for me it's like how the plant i'm watching the plant and how it develops but it's how many nodes do i have from the top if i'm down to like the sixth seventh node those usually are coming off because the nodes above it are going to be fucking going to make it so that these ones at the bottom don't even develop i just know that from experience from growing these strains um, and that's another thing is like as you grow these things, you can make these micro adjustments for the next grow. You can be like, oh, 
the last bud, when I harvested this plant, the, the bud at the very bottom of my plant was pretty damn big. I'm going to not skirt it as much next time because I think I could squeeze more yield out of this if I would, would have left more. Um, so there's no hard rule. It's always what happened last time and adjust. And um, I guess that's my best answer. Yeah, so I'm definitely packing on the bottom better than others. Doc, uh, do you have any thoughts on the shaved leg situation? How much do you like yeah. that? I think about it from the other side. So I think about the thickness of the canopy that I want to leave behind. And the thickness of the canopy that you can support depends on the average PPFD that you're delivering to your canopy. So if you're delivering above 700 micromoles of average PPFD, which is sort of what we recommend, then you should be able to support a canopy that's 18 inches thick. So 18 inches deep of canopy. Um, if you have a... a average PPFD that's lower than that, that's, you know, around 600 or maybe five to 600, I would do like 12 inches or less. Um, this is exactly sort of related to our other question about the, the larfy bud at the bottom of the plant, right? It has to do with how much light you're delivering to the top of the plant. Um, if you're in a CO2 enriched environment and you're given 1500 micromoles or, you know, an average PPFD of like 1200, then you could probably do, you know, 24, 28 inches of, of canopy at the top of the grow. Um, and, you know, so you work down from the top and you think about how much, how thick of a canopy can you actually support um, with the amount of light that you're delivering to those plants. And yeah, I think the best way to deal with that is, is average PPFD. Um, I kind of think about that. I, I, I'm, I sort of am thinking about it, you know, based on my own experience, but that's, that's what I do. Um, and definitely noticed when I increased the, the average PPFD up towards, you know, above 850, um, I was able to get a much thicker canopy with, with good size buds all the way to the bottom of that canopy. That's a good point. Um, no, the grower's got his hand up, so I want to let him jump in here. Yeah, I have, uh, definitely have thoughts on this so okay every plant's different uh number one it's going to be how much your light penetrates you know your canopy obviously and you're going to know that over time having used that light obviously it's strain dependent obviously it depends on how much you're gonna you're gonna spread your plants out how much you're gonna do with it but i would almost always recommend doing a very fair amount of uh, trimming the skirt up if the, if your plants are bigger if you have little teeny plants like you know your plants are only like two and a half feet tall yeah you, you know because the light's not most light's not going to penetrate as far as people think especially if you have it pretty thick on the top so i mean here in the next like couple months uh my light will switch and i'll build a go live in a room and i'll show i i always make sure my skirts are high and you know it it definitely i think creates less work when you're you're trying to get as many harvests in a year as you can um, I mean, there's different strains that like, like you're saying that are going to have some buds that are smaller at the bottom, but you know, my rule of thumb is to kind of, you're going to get better airflow underneath there. You're going to have less uh, surface matter for pathogens and, and to, to, for your IPM. There's just a lot of advantages to it. Less trimming of larvae buds or, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it, the advantages are, are great when you trim up the skirts high. So I think that Doc said like 28 inches or like between like two to three feet of solid canopy. I haven't been able to pull off much more than, you know, two, two feet of really solid canopy. And then that last foot might be like B buds or C buds, maybe even D buds, if we're being honest. Hold on. Um, I, I didn't say that. That's way more than I said, Jack. Oh, I said, I said 18 said inches for most growers. 
With, oh, if okay. you're if your max ppft is a thousand micromoles with gwbar and a non-co2 grow I, I wouldn't leave more than 18 inches of canopy yeah i guess uh, i think 2018 yeah. is is pretty ideal you know uh, i've got uh, a bunch of co2 in my grow and I, i've mentioned in the past i guess i don't enrich i just have cats that live in my house and i checked i was lucky enough to have a guy michael shout out to you one of our listeners he sent me a co2 monitor for free just to test my environment and i did for a few weeks and 1300 was the lowest it ever got. And okay, but you also need to have high PPFD with that high CO2. Yeah, and I do run between, it depends on cultivar, like Noah was just talking about, because if I have a cookie plant, they don't like any more than like 500 to 750, even with the high CO2. Like they just, if they're heavy cookie influence, that strain, it just doesn't seem to like a lot of light. Where a lot of other strains, in my experience, like a lot more light. But um, for whatever reason, cookie crosses don't tend to love highlight environments, even with lots of CO2. But I'm curious, Spartan, I know at your uh, commercial cultivation, I look at the stacks and I see that there's like at least three rows of trellis. They're usually between like six or eight, maybe. I don't know how far apart they are. But uh, when you guys are doing that three plus a light with certain strains, I'm curious how dense and deep the canopy is. And granted, you guys are using double-ended in, in a commercial environment, but still just interested to hear deep the canopy is i would i would say it's really okay so we have three nets we have always cleaned all the way up to the first net there's no vegetation there for sure um we're most of it's cleaned out between that second and third net there might be there might be at the most two inches there and then the whole distance between from the second net up to the top net and then past that distance might be might be 18 inches 18 to 20 inches so plus another two so you're probably two feet two two feet to two and a half feet being real conservative and i mean the buds are dense enough and you pack them in there enough that you hit those numbers so it, it works out so like I don't think people need to get over uh, zealous in how much canopy they want to keep. Some people are afraid to shave the legs. So taking off some and just leaving that 18 inches or, you know, up to two feet, if you want to be even a little bit conservative with it. Um, well, the light, yeah, the light in a commercial facility is a whole different ball game than what you're dealing with at home. I mean, it's like you could, it's almost like outside. You just have to put a plan out there and you get so, so good. It's more the, I, th- I think it's because the wild walls are so white and then we're really, I mean, we're not being very efficient. We're just throwing shit tons of fucking light straight down and, and uh, just filling the whole space with light. Isn't that sort of like the LEDs uh, kind of thought process now that they're all going to the uh, strip style where there's like the inverse square law that more basically points of light you have um, allows you to like basically raise it or you can change the distance from the canopy and still get a good amount of coverage. But um, I'm curious, Doc, what, what are your thoughts on like how the commercial facilities light hits the plant versus like in, I know a four, like a, a two by four or a four by four or a five by five, some of the LEDs now are made to smash that out. And these mylar walls have pretty high reflectivity. So I'm curious, um, how, how do you think they compare? In terms of just the distribution of PPFD? Like how the plant is reacting because it's coming from a, a smaller space, I guess, in a tent. Like uh, in Spartan's case with the um, commercial facility, the lights are on a ceiling, which is like 20 or maybe 10 feet away. And in your grow tent, um, the light has a similar principle, but it's 
hung at a closer distance. So I'm curious as right. if you have thoughts on that. So in, in the larger scale space, you're just going to have a, a more even distribution of high density light. In a smaller scale space, it's going to drop off towards the ends pretty much no matter what you do. You have to put so much more light than you actually need in in a like four by four or five by five light is space in order to get uh, a really even distribution. So like the best fixtures, if, if you have a thousand maximum in the middle, the very best five by five fixtures can keep the corners like, you know, at 550 or 600 or something like that. Most of them can't even keep the corners above that. Um, but if you're in a commercial space, you have a uh, neighboring fixtures that spill light over into what would have been the corner of that space. Um, and those neighboring fixtures are better than mylar walls. Um, so that's why you hang the lights up high. You just think about the total amount of, of PPF you need for the whole room. You hang the lights up high, you let the inverse square rule sort of spread the light out evenly across that whole space. And, there won't be any variance. So I think the biggest phenomena is in a large commercial space, one plant to the next, they're all experiencing very similar PPFD. In any tent, the plant that's in the corner is gonna be getting less light than the plants that are in the middle, right under the, right under the light. And there's, it's not efficient to try to, to sort of change that too much. Um, I was actually, I just ran all the tests. I was doing this, this create the best PAR map with that adjustable PAR fixture, the, the Mars Hydro FCE 6500. And, and that's just what I kept coming back to. It's like I can move a whole ton of light out towards the edges with that. Um, but you just really lower the, the usable PPF. You lower the amount of light that reaches the canopy. Um, so that's the big advantage of a larger space is you just get, it's more economical, it's more efficient to have an even spread of light. So uh, Aaron, the grower and the American one, I haven't heard uh, your guys' thoughts on this shaved leg situation. And then uh, we have a pretty fun, interesting question after that. Um, I don't, I won't take too long because I agree with everything everybody said and everybody's, you know, everybody's on point with everything they said. Um, I will say that, when I thin my plants, I basically create a mini copy of the plant inside the plant, about a fifth the size of the plant. And that space is what I defoliate. So um, if it's a if it's like a Christmas tree shaped plant, I put a little Christmas tree cone of defoliation all the way down the plant. If that makes sense. It sounds similar to what I, I just go in and I just pull off first two nodes and just go on the inside, go back to the next. I kind of, I just did a post on IG about it. I just reshared that post. I was about to say that. <laughs> yeah, I clear all the insides out yeah, and I do that all the way up to, to close to the top. It was a very, something very visually demonstrated. So definitely check out Spartan Grown on Instagram if you want to see that post because uh, I like how he broke it down and I like how he's got his uh, plant like a little bit above the ground, but planted in the ground in the pot. Like he's always talked about, he's a man who, uh, you know, he walks it like he talks it, so to speak. He, uh, um, real quick, uh, Spartan, how do you feel about defoliating like in it, in like flower, like past week 21, like obviously 21, 20, 22, that's kind of like, you know, go to for most growers, I feel for defoliating. But what if you like day kind of like space it and you're talking day 30, day 35, and you can see that light's not penetrating? How do you feel about that? So for me, I never know what day it is in flower outdoor. I can kind of guesstimate by looking at the plant. But for me, 
when I do a defoliation, it's usually because I can't see through the plant when I'm looking through, which means there's not enough airflow. So usually the defoliation is all mold prevention, you know, IPM kind of thing. It's not usually for any other reason. It's, it, it's usually for those reasons. And so I will do, that's top priority to me. I will do that anytime. I'll do that day before harvest. I'll do that. In fact, I, I really, I actually, I strip all the fans off right before harvest anyway, but I'll strip leaves. If I feel like it's too thick, it feels like I'm out there on my outdoor gardens. When I had just 12 plants, I would be out there. I always made, I always made this joke. As soon as you start to defoliate, you'll never stop because you it'll take you maybe a day to get through the plant. And then you go to the next plant. And by the time you get done to the last plant, the first plant needs it again. So it was like almost an everyday thing for me for a while. That's how they paint the Golden Gate Bridge. They literally, they start it. And then by the time they finish it, they, I swear to God, they have to restart it. That's how they do it. That's a great answer. And that's exactly how I do it too. I just do it as I go. And, but I just don't know if that's what everybody else does. You know, I just have always just instinctually done that. You know, so awesome. Yeah, man. It's the same way, same way I do it. All right. Let me, yeah, let me give you my, uh, I think a lot of the uh, skirting thing has to be strain dependent because I've seen people right before they put in a flower, they'll strip everything. There'll be one little sprig. I mean, it'll just be stems and like five leaves at the tip. Like I think the world's last hope did it once. And I was like, he's crazy. But, but then that particular strain will grow three feet of buds from that spot so if you're so i say you gotta go like that everybody's right like doc said use the light so if you think you have a three foot two foot whatever you think that that light is going to handle the penetration you could uh, lollipop up to where you leave that much space but like i'm saying strain dependent some strains will uh add three feet on in flower and some strains will add one foot in flower so i think you have to take a whole bunch of things into consideration but most importantly is the light if the light doesn't get to the lower ones you may as well cut them out <clears throat> so yeah, that's think, my take pretty much i agree with you man and i think that's why i tell people to don't worry about the strain dependence so much the strain dependence thing works itself out because as you run in the same environment that you have the ones that right. are and if, working in that environment you're not going to keep anyway you're going to just cut right. that plant out and if it grows three feet and, and you know you could take you could c- cut more branches off as it, you know, the light doesn't reach down far enough. You can always take more off. You can't glue them back on. So you could be a little more hesitant if you want, I would say too, you know? Good points. Uh, we have a really interesting and funny question. I love this one from Chris Webb. You are what you eat. If I give my worms nothing but pink food uh, covering all NPK and macros, fed to cannabis over time could i potentially create a pink strain does it work like that no to a certain extent it might depend on why the food was pink in the first place but the the answer is generally going to be no i like his answer better it's more nuanced it's true I will say that uh, if you eat just like only carrots there's been the occasional person who starts to turn a little orange that happened to my grandmother. Yeah, you know, twice. I was gonna say, I was gonna say, uh, there are studies about aluminum increasing blue, so there, there is something to be said for this, but it's very particular. Yeah, Silver. sequestration is usually the thing. I was just watch, I was just looking at a photo on Twitter. Um, this person was sharing uh, two different caterpillars. One of them was, uh, I think, on 
it was on one plant, another one was on another. And in, in one plant, it was able to sequester, I mean, a sense of this was having to sequester the, the, the color, the pigments, and it, it turned a very similar shade of the, of the plant. Whereas on a different plant host, uh, it was like bright yellow. It wasn't able to do that. So it's very, it, it's usually pretty context dependent. And sometimes like, like Aaron says, you have to have additional stuff. Like when people put food coloring in like the water and a white rose will take up some of that water and it'll start to take on the color of whatever they put in there. I think that's what maybe uh, CJ Webb's thought was there. We have another question from uh, TJ Richmond because I, I think we've kind of gotten past the pink question there, but uh, with as much nuance as we possibly can. Um, hey everyone, question for the panel. I'm in the middle of my first indoor flowering cycle. Is there a benefit to an even longer dark period? Uh, than 12 hours, say 11.13 or 10-14. I jumped on this in chat. I said, if they were flowering under 12 hours of darkness, there's no benefit to increasing the darkness. I know that you like to run 13 hours of dark, Jack, but I think that that is something that you would do right off the bat, right? Yeah, I, I tried uh, one harvest doing 12-12 for like the first two weeks or three weeks just to see if maybe the stretch would be so much more productive that I'd want to always run 12-12 and then dial it back to 11-13 to yeah. like finish and give it more of like a simulating nature kind of effect. Um, one, it was a little more work, something for me to remember, to be perfectly honest. I hate, fucking hate adjusting my timer. I'm probably going to buy, I just saw somebody said that you can get those little plugs fairly cheaply, the like Wi-Fi plugs, and I'll probably set up all my lights on those uh, because it seems like a lot more reliable and if I could just set that to a timer it'd be easier to change and adjust and not sometimes malfunction like if you bump it because i use the pin timer still where you like press it down uh i guess i'm old-fashioned oh but wow that's old school man yeah old, i love them because it, once you get it dialed in it works perfectly and it'll be yeah. set exactly how i want it or whatever um but you but, just can't coordinate them i mean if you have two different timers like controlling two different things they're off by like a minute or two it's very hard to get them exactly so mine are 15 minutes off thankfully on purpose because i do the sunrise and sunset with my reds yeah yeah the reds come on 15 minutes before stay on the whole cycle and then they do the sunset 15 minutes after and then the white light comes on uh basically just for the 11 well, that's a, this period. is actually an interesting thing i've been thinking about lately i don't mean to derail the conversation but that whole sunrise thing is an interesting thing i've been thinking about lately I love the sun uh, set more so than anything because like Spartan has mentioned and many others have in the past, as opposed to going from like total intense light, even like a dimming it uh, yeah. to total darkness, you can help your plants not go into basically a uh, much higher humid space. You're, you're allowing the environment. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think at the sunrise, um, you know, I test a lot of lights, every single light turns on about 10% stronger than it stabilizes at. And during the first half an hour, if you ever watch one of my videos, I always say I have to wait half an hour for the light to warm up. During that first half an hour, you know, a light would start at like, you know, 1100 and come all the way down to 1000 in that half an hour because the diodes are so much more efficient when they're cold. So I was just thinking about that. Like, you know, when the lights turn on in your tank, um, if you turn them on full blast right away, you're blasting them with like more light than they get at noon, right, right at the, the you know, first light is like the most light they get all day. Um, and I think that that's one of the big advantages of the, the controllers that gradually ramp the lights off is they avoid that, that sort of warm up spike that brings the, the plants really too much light when the lights first turn on. You know, I wanted to bring this up um, if we would talk about lights, we did so. 
Um, the, a, a recent research report came out uh, by Kasuma, Westmoreland, Jen, and Bruce Bugby. And the title is called Photons from uh, Near-Infrared LEDs Can Delay Flowering in Short-Day Soybean and Cannabis Implications for Phytochrome Activity. And although I didn't, I'll be honest, I didn't go over it in great detail. It was just an interesting thing to see crop up because I know- What we were wavelength were they dealing with there? Let me check and I can send this to anyone who would be interested in the report, but uh, let me just- I usually try to go through Bugby stuff, but I haven't seen that one yet. Far red photons- better. Far red photons greater than 700 nanometers re-induce flowering when applied after a pulse of red photons during the dark period. However, far red photons at sufficiently high intensity and duration delay flowering in sensitive species. Mechanistically, this response occurs because phytochrome red absorbance is not zero beyond 700 nanometers. Uh, yeah, and they said that we applied nighttime photons from near infrared LEDs at a peak of 850 nanometers over a 12-hour dark period. Flowering was delayed in glycine max, which is soybean, and cannabis. Oh, they're, running the, they're running the, the 700 plus during the dark cycle. That's correct. Uh, but, and I guess by three days and 12 days, respectively. So as the flux of photons from NAR LEDs was increased up to 83 and 116 moles uh, per meter squared or, or per second, this suggests that long wavelength photons from near infrared LEDs can activate phytochromes and thus alter plant development. That's what they said. So like if you have a bunch of security cameras with a bunch of little infrared lights and they create 116 micromoles of uh, PPFD on your canopy during the 12 hour dark period, it'll delay your uh, flowering time starting in certain species, maybe even cannabis. Hey, the numbers there seem like a lot. Yeah, so I want, I'm wondering how much how much IR light they were hitting the plant. So it's an interesting article, Matt. I'll look into it. Maybe say, yeah, well, by the time I come back in a few weeks, I'll, I'll It wouldn't shock me if the whole claim of like, oh, IR takes a week or two weeks off of flowering. Uh, I've never observed that directly, running the little red. And my in my setup, the red that I'm running is while the other lights are on, not during a dark period. And it's such a small fraction of the yeah. overall light that it's I insufficient. I don't know about that as much as the, the initiating the flowering period. So the idea that if you hit the plants with like 730, um, when the lights go out for half an hour, that you can leave them under darkness for only like eight hours and still be in flowering. Um, that's the, the sort of red triggering response for the photo period that it basically allows you to have the dark period be shorter. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is I thought about implementing it, but because, and maybe this is because I run a little bit too much or uh, a lot of light in my space. I've never under clocked my light. I've always been either too much or like right on the money. And so with being able to apply, uh, you know, pretty high amount of light efficiently in my space, I don't mind sacrificing the one hour because right. I feel like the amount of uh, yield that I lose, I can, somewhat say I make up for in potential quality because I do think that having that longer dark period it allows the and this is my own speculation I have no data to support this at all this is just how I feel about in my cultivation experience I think having one extra hour of darkness allows the plant to maybe recover more maybe it's using that time to uh, make more terpenes or flavonoids or cannabinoids that are appealing to me 
And yeah. even sometimes I think it allows maybe some of that uh, expression that we often talk about, like the purples and the blues and the different colors that come out in cannabis, I think can be maybe somewhat tied to the dark period. Yeah, and I think that there's a love-hate relationship between the cannabinoids and, and high-intensity light too. So as long as you're giving the plants enough energy during the 24-hour cycle, um, having time when they're not getting their terpenes burned off and their cannabinoids burned off is probably helpful. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, I think that it's important to consider, again, sort of like we, what's happening physiologically, like the, the difference between in, you know, sort of inducing the production of these things, uh, but also whether or not maybe through other means and processes, you might be diminishing the results of, the, of that, you know, because there's all these various influences happening at once that people have to consider. And I think when people, you know, this is a plus one article and um, I, you know, it's just one, one example of this. And I'm not saying that's wrong or right or whatever, yeah, but um, no, it's interesting. When, when, people, when people bring up this research, I think it's really important to consider the entirety holistically of um, what you're trying to do in your production space um, before trying to be like, oh, well, this must necessarily mean that I need to, um, you know, fill up on near infrared light and really maximize this <laughs> or something like that, you know, try not to try not to like take from one article and, and expand it out to like an entire production regime because it might not pan out and there might be ways. I, I agree. Even... And this one in particular seems to be a pretty specialized application of something. It, it's not that most growers would probably want to follow this. It's just that it reveals interesting information that we can tweak other kinds of practices as a result of potential. hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. So cool. So it's a little cool thing. Yeah, no, it, it conforms. I think that, you know, 7.30, the combination with the, the far red and the near red for the Emerson effect is, is one aspect of that. But the far red really does do stem elongation. Um, you know, I was talking to an engineer at a grow light company um, about what, sort of how they decide how much chips to put in and how much of the, the power to drive to the different spectra. Um, and he was explaining that they put the most IR chips in their smallest light because, um, and the, the littlest light that they make has like twice as many IR chips as the, the next biggest one. And he's like, it's because it's really for seedlings. And those people that are using those small lights is primarily for seedlings. And for the larger flowering plants, we put very little infrared light um, of the 730s in there, like less than 1% of the power draw. Um, so it, it definitely conforms to that understanding about sort of the benefits of, of the far red light. Um, it's not what you want to be focused on during the flowering period. That would be, you know, to the extent that there's a spectrum that that really helps with the sort of cannabinoid or the ripening or whatever else, that would be the, the UVs. And the research there is a little bit inconclusive, but it certainly seems that there's something. But giving the extra IR light during the, the flowering period is not generally a good idea. Definitely some interesting stuff with the IR and UV, or uh, more so on the UV, I guess, coming out of like Migro has uh, posted a few things lately, just about cannabinoid increases and terpene increases in certain studies. So it's cool to see that. I think that's definitely going to be um, sort of bleeding edge and uh, implemented in certain cultivation environments where hopefully they don't have people in there ever when the those lights are on, or they can set up a time where it just, you know, 
works well within their cultivation. But I, I see a lot of people starting to try and implement that. And I could definitely see it benefiting the plants as far as uh, secondary metabolite production, but not being the primary source of light um, by any means. Some people want to also get real... friendly. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Friendly ahead, reminder. Friendly reminder that like, um, uh, and we've talked about this before, but uh, you know when you're looking at lights, uh, don't use wattage as a as like a proxy for good or bad, right? We've, we've gone over this many times and uh, MJ Coco definitely talked about this many times, but uh, I was recently hearing about, I guess, people using a light that was like, like a <laughs> massive amount of wattage for like a small four by four space or something like that. And I just, and like some people were asking, well, couldn't you just mitigate that by turning down the, um, you know, by dimming the lights or something like this? Are you talking about FOS and uh, POP? Am I? I'm not sure. Poetry, probably a yeah. thousand watt over a four by four yeah that's I what saw i that heard drama a lot of memeage going on over there oh wow okay it, so he's dimming it though no 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 it's just some people were saying well could that be mitigated that way and i just wanted to articulate that like your light draws the power and it doesn't and dimming the lights doesn't change the draw necessarily because i think you need a, don't you need a governor to do that a governor no, the, if you dim the light, it, it lowers the power drop. Oh, does it? Well, there you go. That's what well, I wanted to But confirm. Matthew, with the light that they are probably using, I would imagine it's a thousand watt HPS. And when you do dim it, it changes the spectrum. And it oh, does. Oh, is, uh, is it an HPS? No, no. I it was, it was an LED. An, it was an oh, okay, LED. It was a 1500 watt that they stuffed in a four by four. 1500 watts. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna. i go see if I can find the link. To That's that. insane. Well, you can't support the PPFD. So people think sometimes that it's just a matter of heat or whatever. But if you put way too much PPFD into a place, you're just going to toast your plants. Um, yeah. If you dim it down, then you're not running a 1500 watt light. I mean, I just tested a, a thousand watt light um, dimmed to 80% in a five by five space because I thought some people might want to buy it and run it in that if they didn't have supplemental CO2 because if you were going to run this light at full power, you would need supplemental CO2. So there's reasons to do that. If somebody's just giving their plants like 2,500 PPFD, they're going to end up with dead plants. Okay. Well, that's good to confirm because I, I, I understood it to be different that uh, the wattage would change um, or that it wouldn't change in some, in some instances or something like that. But yeah, you're actually, when you dim it, you're, you're dimming the, the, driver itself is you're telling okay. you and, and reading the power meter if you don't have a quantum meter um reading the power meter is a fairly accurate way of determining how much you're actually dimming um just to be aware that the light becomes more efficient when you dim it so if your power reading is half of what it used to be your light is going to be about 55 to 60 percent of full power, not not exactly half. You you sort of gain efficiency as you dim the fixture, um, which is one of the reasons that you would do that um, if you can afford the upfront purchase cost price, because generally it's more expensive to buy a light that you know has more LEDs and could deliver more power. Um, but if you then run it dim, the advantage there of putting these big you know. The, the, five, the 1500 watt light that he's running, I can almost guarantee you is in a 120 by 120 centimeter frame because that's a standard size for shipping. Um, and that is 120 centimeters is four by four. So there's no gap around the outside of it. That fixture's hitting up wall to wall. 
and it's got a ton of diodes distributed all over the, the, the you know, the array, um, you dim them down, you can get incredibly good distribution of density exactly where you want. And since the LEDs are more efficient at a lower wattage, you're actually getting a more efficient light. The, the drawback from that is it's a more expensive upfront purchase cost because you're buying a bigger light. Um, that doesn't necessarily sound what this, like what this person is doing. It sounds like what they're running it at full power, like way too much light and way too small of a space. Is that right? I'm not sure on this yeah. one, but Brandon Rust, uh, he got those photon techs, which are, I would consider like a affordable. They're not like a budget, like a, something that you wouldn't want to use. It's a good quality light for a fair price, in my opinion. And he said that in his uh, shipping containers, he's doing racks, granted, he has two on top of each other, uh, yeah. rows. But he said he's got them dimmed down to have his best results. And he runs pretty um, high, you know, power. He used to run a pretty high powered LED indoor operation and i think uh he was surprised by just how much light some of these lights can put off and maybe even how little you need to drive these lights because like you were just talking about they're more efficient when yep. driven a little bit less and if the plants are responding well and you can give them less light and you're still hitting the yields you're going for that's like the best of all worlds like if yeah you don't want to buy the light that's too big and have too much of an upfront cost but i got a little bit too big for my space and then i can always like for the plants that really love it crank it and for the ones that don't i just let it kind of uh, hang out in like middle to like 75 percent range and uh, just see how they go yeah this is more like how people buy cars right you buy a car that can go like 150 miles an hour that doesn't mean that you actually drive it 150 miles an hour um and a lot of people like like the big engines and all this stuff even though they're never going to use all of that capacity right but it's there it's there for you if you need it. Um, and it does allow you to, to get much better distribution. Um, running a dim like that also increases the longevity. So it increases the efficiency and the longevity. You can get excellent distribution of, of wonderful density light. The, the drawback is just the upfront purchase cost. I got to say, shout out to HLG and to Timber Grow Lights. I've been running them both for years, slightly dimmed in uh, some circumstances or like very dimmed in my veg space, the HLG 65. And those things just run so true. And uh, I've never had an issue with either of them. They have great distribution of light, good build quality, uh, great customer service, both uh, American manufactured. So shout out to those two companies. Uh, they've treated me very well and grown tons of, literally not tons, but pounds of uh, medicine for myself and my wife. And uh, just gotta say thanks to them. Again, not sponsored at all, but uh, they've definitely done great in my garden. I know Spartan, you're on some, do you still run your HLGs? I know you've got a uh, science over there now too. Yeah, mostly all HLG except for, um, yeah, I have a science LED in the flower room, an HLG in there. Then in my bedroom, I have, <clears throat> I've got a old Spectrum King 100 watt, uh, like closet case hanging in there, but it's not even plugged in right now, but I use it when I need extra light. So I still have that. I think that's probably my oldest light, that old Spectrum King. That's hilarious. I was going to say, what's your oldest LED and how is it performing? I was going to say, what's your oldest HLG actually? Because what's your oldest still in production and uh, how's it performing now? So my oldest HLG is the version one, the 550 version one. And that's in my flower or my nut flower, my, uh, my tent that I have for the moms and then in the autos. And then the oldest one though is, got to be 
Oh, I do. Have, it's not. Yeah, it's not working. I mean, it's it's just in storage. But I have I have a three fifteen uh, ceramic metal halide that I don't use. But yeah, my oldest LED is that Spectrum King I was telling you about that hundred watt light. It's oh nice no, I have a Spectrum they... King. I have a Spectrum King and it's LED, a Spectrum King clone light that I think is even older. You know, it hangs above the cloner. It's just a little bar. <laughs> It, it is amazing how long some of them can last and continue to perform. Maybe not at a hundred percent, but pretty close to you know whatever is needed to grow your plants. Yeah, yeah, way better than having to replace bulbs. That's for sure. Doc, what do you think about that? With the all these new lights coming out, everything gets a little bit more efficient. It's kind of like phones. Like each year, you get a little bit better camera, uh, megapixels, things like that. But now. Um, with lights, they're kind of lasting so long. Um, do you think that people should buy, use them for a little bit, and then try and maybe flip them, or just buy Depends one? Depends on what you got. It. I mean, it, it, if you're running blurples or HPS, I think that it's worth upgrading um, because the efficiency, you know, you can literally double the efficiency now of blurple lights or the HPS. Um, to, to get a more high efficiency LED and the high efficiency LEDs have come down so dramatically in cost. Um, it, it's still a tough call. It depends on how much you're running. It depends on what your goals are and all these things. But if, if, if you run the math on just the efficiency savings, um, it, it usually makes sense to do it over the course of just a couple of grows to, to upgrade um, from Blurple or from HPS. If you're running pretty much any full spectrum LEDs that are getting, you know, at least like one and a half um, micromoles per watt or something, then it might not be time to upgrade yet. Um, it, it depends. And I think everybody's going to sort of run the, the numbers on their upfront costs and how important it is to sort of lay out that money now. This depends on what economists would call your discount rate. Um, how valuable those upfront costs are you compared to the amount of money that, that you pay out in electricity over the course of the run. The other thing is you can get a better harvest, not necessarily because you're getting better quality light, but because you're getting a better distribution of light. Um, how much is that FOS, that 1500 there you're looking at, Jack? Yeah, I, I just want to say quickly that the, you have the, to manufacturer, the manufacturer yeah. says it's for high bay, single level cultivation so they're not advertising it's to put in a four by four tent but yeah i think in that meme and all that stuff they would like yeah someone had it in a four by four tent i think so <laughs> yeah that makes a lot more sense and i yeah. think that it, it was a circumstantial thing but no uh, I, I gotta say this it, it, dr photon my partner is doing the same thing almost um i got him one of the photon tech xt 1000 watt co2 pros and he stuck it in a four by four tent. Um, he's running it at 75% with eight bars um, because the photon tech, you can remove there. It's normally a 10 bar fixture, but you can remove two of them. And he's having easily the best harvests he's ever had. He's really sort of pegged out to the maximum amount of light you can put in that space. So that's the, the example that we've sort of been doing this lately. Um, I'm probably going to set up a very similar grow here in a few weeks when I set up my next grow. Um, I'm not going to do um, a four by four. I'm going to do a five by five, but I'm going to put too much light in it and run it dim um, and try to get this sort of the best distribution of light at about a 1000 micromole maximum. What do you, 
What do oh, you that light is like thirty five hundred bucks, by the way. Oh, great! It's not yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. I looked it so, up. Yeah, that's insane. Are you putting? Are you putting Way that more than one in there, Doc? What's that? Are you going to end up putting that easy eight thousand watt fixture in that five by five space you're talking about? I, well, I actually have two thousand watt fixtures right now. I have the easy eight. I just tested the easy eight, by the way. Aaron did really well. Yes, um, yes. I just tested it yesterday, and I ran a second dimmed test this morning. That was the one that I was talking about when I said I just tested one dimmed at eighty percent in a five by five. Yeah, no, I think I'm going to end up giving that one away. Uh, you know, I did this giveaway during my last Grow Light premiere, and like during the premiere, I did a giveaway, and it got a bunch of people to come to the premiere. So. I've decided that's pretty much what we're going to do with the, the grow lights that I test is I'm going to give them away during the, was, the video premiere on YouTube. So I don't think I'm going to keep that one. I always wondered how, how effective that kind of a thing is. Um, so it makes people show up. They want the light. Yeah. It led to people showing up right then. And then it led to like more people subscribing to my channel to be part of the next one. So, and I, so I think the, the word still has to travel out there. You know, if everybody knows that I'm doing giveaways every time I premiere a video, they'll probably show up. And now I just told, you know, 150 new people. We got to say he's out to Spartan growing guys. He's got uh, 15 oh. minutes before he goes to the Michigan bros grow show. So I just want to give him a chance to get some water, refill his tray and let the dogs out if he needs to. Later, Spartan. <laughs> See you guys. Hello, Spartan. I don't, um, uh, I don't even know what to say here, so I just love to hang with you guys. Fucking awesome hanging in the chat, and I'm getting the fuck out of here. See you guys. Later, Peace out, Spartan. You can find him at Spartan Grown, uh, spartangrown at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Spartan Grown. Peace out. Doc, uh, what, what, uh, what light would you recommend for a uh, guy who doesn't know anything about a tent for a 4x4 tent? Like, you know what I mean? Like a guy like me. I don't, I've never really grown in a tent that much, and I'm thinking about doing it because I want to do a pheno hunt, and I don't want to break the bank, and I don't know anything about LED, so. You know, the best budget option is that's out there right now is still the Metacro Fold 8. Check out that video that I did a while ago. It's like the cheapest light. It tests really well. And we've got like a hundred people that have it now that are all reporting really good results with it. So I'm feeling good about that one. That's the easy eight is from that same company that I'm testing that light too. And it did well too. Um, the, the Mars has some really good fixtures now too that are, are cheap and um, both the FC and the FCE series, the Photon Tech are awesome fixtures that, that Jack brought up. Their 465 is an awesome um, four by four grow light. It depends to some extent on, you know, if you're looking for just like the cheapest light to get the most micromoles out of it. Um, if you want something that's a little bit sort of better quality, if you want different brand names for some of the components or things like that, um, but if I was buying a light for my four by four tent, I, I think it would be hard for me to spend more money than the Metacro Fold 8 right now, just because of sort of the results that are coming back on that. Comes out to be like 33 cents per micromole. It's just an unbelievable deal. What's, so what's it called? The thousand watt what's it called again? It's the Medic Grow Fold 8. Check out my video on that on my YouTube channel. It's one of my only grow light videos that has gotten age restricted. Um, so nobody's ever seen it. It's got like the lowest view count of any of my videos because it got age restricted for some silly reason. But check it out on my, my channel. I do several part tests with that in both a 5x5 five five and in a 4x410. Four four um, awesome, really man. Awesome. So what's the 1,000 uh, watt that won the, won the like you're going to keep it? 
That's the Photon Tech. Um, Photon Tech XT 1000 watt CO2 Pro. I tested that one back in April, I think. And I did a really long video on that where I really got into sort of the heat issues, removing bars versus dimming. One of the things I like about the Photon Tech lights is you can, it's a 10 bar light, but you can take two of the bars out. And that created such an amazing distribution in um, the, the five by five space. So there's, there's cool sort of different things. That's probably what I'm going to do. I'm going to run a thousand watt light, but I'm going to leave two of the hundred watt bars out. So it's only going to be an 800 watt light um, and put it in the, the five by five grow space. Um, and that's just going to be close to perfect. It's amazing. The new LEDs. Uh, I'm not brand loyal necessarily to any one of them. I think a lot of them are doing really good to get the one that's the best price right now. I think it's the Metagro Fold 8, but uh, for the smaller spaces, like uh, I had somebody who just started growing in a two by four uh, and that Dr. MJ had a great video of the, I think it's the Mars SP 3000. Yeah. Um, it covers it like edge to edge, even though it's not as efficient uh, micro mole, you know, as some of the most current ones the spread of light on it is so good in that grow space. Like if you just buy a two by four tent and that light, you know that you've got it pretty well covered from edge to edge. And um, I know the person who's growing with it has it dimmed all the way down and it's still like a lot of light for the plants and they're growing really, uh, you know, vigorously. The, the light at least of the issues, they're having other, you know, watering and yeah. trying to keep the nutrients uptake with it. But that light is amazingly uh, a bit capable of producing light in a small space. And that's what I did after I tested, I was like, damn, I mean, I had been growing in a four by four before that, um, a fully lit four by four. And I'm like, I, I think I could hit the same harvest targets out of a four by two with this light. And I came damn close to, to sort of matching my four by four yield, even though I stepped down to a four by two. Um, so yeah, I agree with you there, Jack. That's a, that's a good setup. Uh you did uh, light mechanics where you hung them side by side. And if you do have a four by four, bring two of those. Oh, my connection's unstable. Hopefully I'm not cutting out too bad. He did a little bit, Actually, but I think we got you. Yeah, two of them in a four by four was, was insane. And we know well, we got a bunch of growers that have put that. I think I think somebody that's running two SP 3000s in a four by four was in the chat recently, but we'll see if they comment on that after I just called them out. And uh, yeah, they're, 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 I see uh, gardens runs like the uh, Bloom Plus. I see people using spider farmers. I see a lot of people taking advantage of the uh, and then. Yeah, there's a bunch of little lights for two by two tents that are pretty good too. That it really depends on what you need. I mean, I think a two by two is enough for a lot of home growers that are really just growing for themselves. Um, I think it would be enough for me. And I, my, I use a lot of cannabis, but I can grow pretty good plants too. But I think that, you know, it depends on what you need. And I, I know a lot of growers that are in the small tent, small little light and just producing plenty for themselves. Other people want to produce sort of for economics. Yeah, look, for me and my wife, my tent is a little bit too, if it was just myself, I'd be able to cover my needs. But like my growing in their two by four, only props per year allow more than all of their needs. So it's, uh, they can have like time off between harvest. They can grow from seed every time. Just, uh, it allowed them a lot of freedom. So I'm very thankful to be able to set them up. 
basically you know simple straightforward setup that i think a lot of people can adopt and get if they're growing and if they're struggling maybe try something like that um there's a lot of good guides out there like coco.com i think we're coming up to the almost final hour i'm just curious if anybody uh times will throw out a good question at the end or if anybody else on the panel has final uh questions thoughts or comments on this week's good thing we're coming to the end of this show because it seems like you're running low on internet connectivity there on your end jack but it's hanging in there just well enough oh well that i want to that, shout that out swamp poker for being a great supporter of this channel that's what i want to say Smart Poker, you often supplement what we say with links. You often supplement things with, with good commentary, in my opinion. So I just want to shout that out. And I'm noticing you doing it just here um, with the Cocoa for Cannabis um, grow link because people are Loves, talking about love dimensions. Man. Yeah, I I'll think his girl that. is crispy. Yeah, I do crispy too. Crispy Wannabe. She's yep. awesome too. Shout out yes, to yes, Smart Poker. We love Smart Poker and Crispy Wannabe. They're great members of the communities. I'm uh, happy that they're here this evening listening with us as, as per usual. They're just one of the many, uh, you know, regular listeners. Uh, this name always cracks me up. Crack Babies DWC is uh, another regular out there. So cheers to you and Fat Birdie's Cat, uh, Fried Piper. It's Sungrown 707. I met him in person. I mentioned you earlier on the show. Don't know if you were here for that part, but uh, cheers to you. But yeah, I've seen a lot come in the chat. Um, I would like to like sometimes throw out generalizations like, oh, you know, good enough. But sometimes there's still junky ones on Amazon and eBay and people can still get duped into buying pretty garbage. So taking recommendations from your friends, seeing the people that are growing well and having success with them is definitely a uh, good place to be. Yes, yes. And lucky for me, uh, I, I have all you guys and uh Lucky for all the growers here, man, uh, that are listening. A lot of really good information coming from people like Dr. MJ and uh, everyone here, man. So I'm, I'm privileged to be a part of it myself. So. Yeah, and shout out everyone in chat. Every single one of you listening. Awesome that you showed up and hanging with us. Yeah, I think we had like 150-something. We got 127 now. If you haven't already smashed that thumbs up button, I think 80 of you did it. The other uh, 50 or so are like myself who can be uh, absent-minded uh, cannabis users at the this moment or maybe you didn't like the show maybe you just like the show <laughs> they're, they're still contemplating whether or not it deserves the thumbs up so hopefully they'll decide everything can still minutes. go terribly wrong they have their thumbs down ready <laughs> they're like all right if this goes south i'm not going to give it a thumbs up we got to make it all the way through the two hours without jack's connection fucking up too much or them going on to some crazy off topic for too long but with that said we got five minutes left so i think that's a perfect time to start going around the panel and letting everybody do their final thoughts or uh shout outs so uh staff writer at skunk magazine matthew gates if you'd like to go ahead and tell the people where they can find you yeah you can find me in three main locations you can find me on youtube at zenthanol the same account i was commenting with with Lo. and i have a uh again just a reminder a video about the eurasian hemp borer graphalia deliniana and there's not a whole lot of information we're just starting to do a lot more research on it uh, the entire Torturix moth group is actually really infamous for being incredibly destructive. And so it's no surprise to me that's causing so much problems for people in cannabis and uh, other and other crops too. So um, uh, so if you want to find out about that, you can find that YouTube channel, that video. I just published it. You can also find me on Twitter at SyncAngel and on Instagram at SyncAngel as well. Thanks as always for joining us. Next up, Noah the Groa. Yeah, I had a great time. Uh... 
feel like a donkey for not having followed uh, Dr. Review's page, but I remedied that, went over and followed it, uh, looked at the video a little bit, just checked it out, seeing some of your comments, Aaron the Grower's comments, and uh, yeah, I know, I'm uh, Noah the Grower on Instagram, and uh, I've been growing for a while, and I'm constantly learning and loving it, and uh, I love this stuff, I'm a geek for it, and I got a bunch of, of seeds I'm getting ready to pop, and I'm going to get a, uh, I have a tent, and I'm going to get a, a light, and I'm going to start running through some gear, and uh, We'll see it. I'll, I'll start posting my page and stuff. But uh, yeah, I had a great time and I'll see you guys all next week. See you next week, Noah. And uh, something you said just kind of rang a bell in my head. And uh, the fact that you're still growing and learning and you've been doing it for a long time. Uh, I was listening to Subcools, the podcast, and thinking about some of the other breeders and like people like Frenchie who've passed recently in the community. And it is a tragic loss in its own way. But um, the beauty of it in, in one way is to think every one of them that I saw personally until their very last day loved cannabis. We're still exploring, still learning, still being humbled by the plant and picking up new information all the time, meeting new people in the community and embracing others. And uh, literally until their very last days, they were loving and passionate and uh, always learning. So I think that's a great example for all of us to just keep on learning every single day in your life, no matter how old you are, no matter how much experience you have, it's always uh, great to keep an open mind and uh, follow your passions and do what you love. And Aaron, the grower, you are next up. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, panel. I definitely echo that sentiment. Um, <clears throat> you're never, you're never too smart to be humbled. <clears throat> so uh, I love that about growing because you know the the learning is never ending. Um, I'm Aaron, the grower, ATG Acres on Instagram, YouTube, and ATGAcres.com. Check out my boy KylePBreeding.com. Um, we're doing big shit, so I'm really excited about that. Um, good to be here this week, guys. It's awesome stuff. I can't wait to see it. And in the meantime, support, get yourself a plant packer, best way to send clones, uh, support Aaron the Grower and uh, pbreeding.com. Kyle was with us earlier. Uh, help those guys out on their way along. You, in a small way, can help uh, make their dream happen. They're going to do it either way, but uh, you can make it happen even faster by uh, supporting them. Listening in is one way. Even just being here, being part of the community, a lot of you give us questions, feedback, things that will maybe trigger an idea for us later on or uh, further research that makes us a better grower and allows us to be in the positions that we're in. So uh, thank you all again, like everybody else has said. But next up, we have Dr. MJ. Hey, guys, it was fun to be back. I, you know, when I don't do this show for a couple of weeks, I started to feel like, I mean, I was drifting off. I wasn't the same person. Like nobody would listen to me about plants anymore. I mean, Doing this show, I feel like is is like an important part of my my weekly ritual in order to stay like adequately plugged into the community. So uh, I appreciate you, Jack, for keeping this thing running. I appreciate all the rest of the panelists for showing up. I appreciate all the chatters because, you know, asking these questions and getting us chatting about things and just kind of interacting is it makes it much more fun um, than if it was just the, the six of us or whatever chatting amongst ourselves. Um all that said, I am going to be moving in the next couple of weeks, so I'm, my attendance here may be somewhat spotty. I'll try to drop in next week if I can. The following week, I definitely won't be able to. Um, I do have some YouTube videos coming up. Um, I'm going to get the Viper Spectra video out this week, the, XS, the new XS2000, and I'll be doing a giveaway during that premiere. Um, tested the Metagro EZ8, which is that big 1,000-watt fixture. I'll be doing a, a giveaway during that premiere, too, but that might be a like after the move, we'll see. Um, we're also starting the Plant Training Pro Challenge right now at Cocoa for Cannabis. You can start your plants anytime you want to. Um, we have the flip day. The designated flip day is October 1st. So 
it's still early. You don't have to start yet. You still have like seven, eight weeks or something until October 1st. But when it becomes time that, that that's your veg time, go ahead, drop your seeds, get in that. We're doing uh, giveaways on September 1st um, for a Photon Tech light and October 1st for a Metagrow light. Um, so check that out on my Instagram and I'll shut up now because I've been rambling on. Love you all. Grower love. Thank you. And uh, that's it. Very well said. Thank you so much. And uh, next up we have the American one. So I don't forget anybody. Jack, thanks for hosting again. And thanks for everyone on the panel. Shout out Kyle, Spartan, Brandon, who are not here no more. But uh, And shout out to everyone in chat. And uh, yeah, I'm the American one on the YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Keens on the IG. Most of you know me. And uh, it was awesome hanging tonight. And I look forward to next week. Peace out, everyone. Well said, the American one. Always a pleasure to have you. And uh, on that note, I am at Jack Greenstock on Instagram primarily. You can also catch me on Cannabis, the cannabis-friendly social media app, uh, Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. And if you want to email me, uh, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. You can get my book, 50 Strains of Green, at 50strains.com. Just 50 strains, no green, because there's going to be 50 strands of purple later this year. Uh, one thing I wanted to say before we go is just uh, love and kindness, not just the grower love, but love and kindness is important in life. There's a lot of craziness still going on around the world and um, people are sometimes being judgmental of each other for a myriad of reasons I won't get into but I just think it's important to respect each other and uh, love each other and be kind to each other because there's a lot of uh, craziness that tends to spring up and if we can avoid that and just uh, you know represent well as a community and keep that love and kindness moving forward uh, it definitely helps the world be a better place so with that said thank you all so much for coming Jack Greenstock signing out